Hello, and welcome to Into the Basement. This is Jessica Hanna. And I'm Adrian Hanna. And tonight, we're going to talk about murder. Yeah, we are. We're going to go... We I'm so excited about this episode because... Well, first of all, this is a two-part episode, so get ready for that. Um, this is one of two, obviously. Strap in, folks. Um, we are going back to my favorite time period, which is the 1920s. The Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties. It is... People were... Having a good time. They were drinking booze and being free. And I'm excited. But this story has nothing to do with drinking booze and being free, though. So <laughs> it's about murder. It's about murder. Um, so let's get started. All right. In the 1920s, Chicago was a violent and crime-riddled city. Yeah, we're going to Chicago. It's nice. even better. Like, we're not only just going to the 1920s, we're going to Chicago in the 1920s. Like, it's like, how did you determine that there was a murder? There was murders <laughs> everywhere all the time. <laughs> I'm just about to talk about that just now. The, the gangsters who gained their power through illegal booze, like Joe Torrio, Al Capone, and their rivals, fought it out on the streets, unafraid to use lethal force. Yeah, it's like, that was the time frame in which the the streets of Chicago were just covered in covered blood, in blood yeah. constantly. Not like only... Chicago started a new sewer system in the 20s just so they could get rid of all the blood. <laughs> Not only that, um, the corruption of city officials going all the way to the top and Mayor Big Bill Thompson, if you know anything about Chicago in the 1920s, Big Bill Thompson was corrupt AF. So this is like Tammany Hall levels of yes. corruption. Oh, yes. Nice. Um, was rampant and obvious. Uh, daily muggings, physical violence, and even murder were so common that to make the front page, the crime had to threaten the very bedrock of the city. And that was just covering the mayor. <laughs> On May 21st, 1924, two young men who'd seeming, seemingly been destined for greatness did exactly that when they coldly, calmly, and meticulously carried out a murder that would come to be known to many, and the first of many, actually, as the crime of the century. The crime of the century. We've already covered a crime of the century on we our have. podcast. We have. Uh, the girls in New Zealand. That ah, was also a crime yes. of the century. Okay. And also, the O.J. Simpson trial was the crime of the century. Yeah, and we- also... The kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby was the crime of the century. So there's at least four, three for, in the U.S. for this century. For the for the for the or 20th for century. century yeah. yes. So now, who am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about Leopold and Loeb. That sounds familiar. Yes, to me. and many of you out there probably know about Leopold and Loeb. So let's get into them. I don't know anything other than that I'm vaguely familiar with the name. Anyway, so Nathan Frudenthal Leopold Jr. My goodness. That's a name. <laughs> His family came from Germany in 1846. His... It, it certainly sounds like it. Oh, yes. Um, Samuel Leopold, his grandfather, settled in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Uh, opening retail stores in several locations throughout the Keweenaw, ah, including... You know, up there where uh, Mountain Dew doesn't think is, exists as a state. Oh, that's right. Good old Mountain Dew. Well, they made it up They made it up to them. I think yeah. they have a specific UP Mountain Dew now. Yeah. The stores were in, and I don't know, I know one of these cities, but I don't know any of the others. So there's Eagle River. Okay. Uh, Eagle Harbor. Yep. Clifton. Nope. And Hancock. I know Hancock. I lived in Hancock. Live, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Adrian went to school up there, so... Yep. Uh, since there was no, uh, I know it well. You know it well. Uh, since there was no train connecting the Keweenaw to any large metropolis, there still isn't. <laughs> getting supplies became a struggle, so Samuel decided to change things up. He bought a steamship in 1867 to carry supplies from Chicago, Woo-hoo! and was so successful he was able to buy two more: the SS Antonagin and the SS Peerless. And soon after, he abandoned the UP because, well. 
There's not much up there's there. There's not much there. And the copper mines maybe weren't doing it. Maybe they were. I don't know. But maybe he made enough money that he was got the F out of there and moved to Chicago. And Yeah, I feel like by that point, the, the copper mines in the UP were like dwindling. Well, we're so talking... like, like population started to disperse, etc. I don't know. We're talking about the mid, like the late 1800s. Yeah, but I think that it started to fall. The copper industry started to falter in the UP in like the late 1800s. So Well, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> So he moved to Chicago and continued running the business, which was the Lake Michigan and Lake Superior Transportation Company. I looked it up. I couldn't find it. clearly doesn't exist anymore. But what it came up when I looked it up was the, um, the like, badger and stuff. Like Lake Michigan Like Lake Michigan car ferries, yeah. So after Samuel's death, Nathan Leopold Sr. took over his father's business. And for good measure, he started a second business manufacturing aluminum cans and paper boxes, which okay. is so... Re- I, I always think we should get into something simple like that, like paper clips or something. You make a ton of money. Uh, he married well, started a family, and in 1915, moved to a three-story mansion in Chicago's wealthy Damn. Kenwood neighborhood. Kenwood is where President Obama lives. Okay. So we're talking, it's still pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you think about like neighborhoods in big cities like that. And it's like, you know, one day this is the hot, fancy, highfalutin neighborhood. And the next, the next day it's like a slum. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the slum or what used to be a slum is now the fancy highfalutin neighborhood. I am certain that this, because this was a wealthy, wealthy then, Mm -hmm. but I'm certain this is, this neighborhood has probably been bad and good and bad and good because there's big houses there. Right. So there's still most. Mostly, my what I was reading. Still, most of the houses are one family, a single, a single unit. family homes. So good for so the Chicago's elite pretty much live in Kenwood. Still. Yeah, I would say I would say if they're all still pretty much uh, single family, they probably homes, never lost It's it, yeah. never been anything but a nice neighborhood. Well, by 1915, 11-year-old Nathan Jr., the youngest of three boys, was ready for a change. He'd been attending public school. Even though his family was wealthy, for some reason, I think where they were living, they didn't really have a, access to a nicer school. Um, he'd, received, he'd received endless teasing for everything from the fact that he was very studious, that he was shy, that he was unathletic, to the very real embarrassment that his governess would come to school and meet him to walk him home every day after school so nerd yeah i'm sure he heard that a lot um so the idea of going to school with boys who were similar in class to him similar in thought and interest and things like that must have been pretty great yeah um babe as his family and close friends called him grew up pretty lonely He'd been a sick child, confined to his bed. Um, his brothers were several years older. This is still Leopold? This is still Leopold. Okay. Leopold, babe, Frudenthal. No, wait, I'm sorry. Nathan, babe, Frudenthal, Leopold, Jr. That's a mouthful. Yes. <laughs> I understand why they call him babe. <laughs> yeah, they're like, babe? <laughs> hey, babe. Hey, babe. <laughs> So his brothers were several years older than him, only about five, five or six. But that's still a lot when you're little, you know. Um, It's it's old enough that, you know, you're not going to be like friends or anything. So so he had no natural playmates, but he was close with that governess who always met him after school. Her name was Matilda and he called her Sweetie. Sweetie was a German immigrant who basically replaced Leopold's mother, who stayed in bed with a mystery ailment. Sweetie! <laughs> but I need my medicines. I'm a sick boy. But here's the other thing about Sweetie, honey. Sweetie, honey? She, she was a pedophile. 
or at least she probably was a pedophile. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a lot of rumors and a lot of confirmations by other household staff that she was definitely bathing and had some sort of sexual relationship with um, Nathan's older brother. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty clear that some sexual stuff was going on with Nathan, too. Sweetie, I don't think that taking a bath three times a day is normal. (laughs) Shut up, Nathan. Despite this, Nathan adored her and... Well, yeah, she was like sponge bathing him like three times yeah. a day. I mean, he she came, I think, when he was, she came to them when he was like 10. And then, you know, perfect time period for her to start grooming him. Grooming him, yes. yeah. So when she did leave after a few years, it broke his heart. Um, at school, he had no interest in sports and he had an IQ of 210. Jeebus. Yeah. He was fucking, like when we talk about geniuses, Leopold is a genius. Uh, he tended to repel people because he was, his personality was eccentric. He was pompous. He He, was pedantic. He was so smart that he was basically an alien. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he was just difficult to be around as well. And he was also spoiled, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Oh, sure. Um, Pampered. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, however, after enrolling at Harvard School for Boys, he was able to make some friends, particularly those who shared his interest in ornithology. Okay. Uh, he often spent weekends with friends near the Indiana border searching for birds for his collection. Later, in 1921, while attending the University of Michigan, Leopold would spend time in northern Michigan studying the Kirtland warbler, a bird that in the 1920s seemed likely a likely candidate for extinction. Nathan published a paper on the bird's nesting habits, which brought him acclaim among professional ornithologists. Cool. Yeah, so he was obviously precocious I'll and say. very tenacious and was able to graduate from Harvard School of Boys in 1920 at only 15. Nice. And enrolled at the University of Chicago to study philology, which is the study of the structure, historical development, and relationships of language and languages. Whoa, that's some, uh, that's some nerdy ass shit right yeah. there. He was already like... That's fascinating. Yes. He was at the time that... This all occurred. He was he had studied fifteen languages and was fluent. He claimed in five of them. Some places say that he said he claimed he was fluent in all fifteen. But well, I mean, either way, five is pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you can't really be. Not a, only am I fluent in this language, but I can tell you the history of every single word in this language. Right? Isn't that cool? Yeah. Um. It was at the University of Chicago when he met Richard Loeb, a boy who was equally as precocious, but much different in looks and personality from Leopold, and who Leopold would hold as the highest standard of being, a.k.a. the Ubermensch. Okay. Richard Dickie Loeb. Dickie and Babe. (laughs) Dickie and Babe was born on June 11th, 1905, and grew up not far from Leopold in Kenwood. Richard's father, Albert, was the vice president of Sears, Roebuck, and Company. Ooh, aren't they still headquartered around there? I'm sure they are, um, and was close friends with the company's co-owner, Julius Rosenwald. His wife... Albert Loeb's wife, Dickie's dad. Um, Anna spent much of her time as a high-ranking member of the Chicago Women's Club. Um, Together, the couple had four boys, two older, then Richard, and then a younger boy, Tommy. Uh, The family's wealth was substantial. Albert Loeb was worth approximately $10 million in 1920. What what is that in current current money? It was kind of weird, but I think it's about $130 million. That's... A lot. It's pretty good. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't say no. <laughs> right. So in addition to their house in Kenwood, Adrian, mm-hmm. the Loeb's built a sprawling estate 
in Charlevoix, Michigan. Ah, Charlevoix. It still stands today, Adrian. Nice. You want to know something about it? Sure. It's now a popular wedding and event space. Interesting. I called, think I know where you're going with this. Called Castle Farms. Hey, I've been to a wedding there. Yeah, you stood up in a wedding there. I certainly did. And actually, I'm pretty pumped because this is a pretty gorgeous place that our friends and fans, Ashley and Ryder, got married there. Yep. And I was really pumped because I read it that there was an estate in Charlevoix. I looked it up and lo and behold... Lobe and behold. Lobe and behold. It turns out that that is the place where Ashley and Ryder got married. So fancy, very exciting, and it's gorgeous. It really, truly is gorgeous. Yeah, I w- had I. It did not. I thought it was built specifically for weddings and stuff. Right. To find out that it it's been around since the early it's 1900s. Been converted from a murder house into a wedding well, place. Well, okay, we'll call it a murder house. <laughs> no murders happened there, but right. And actually, Albert Loeb was very well thought of by the community. So. Which may be why they never tore it down, despite the fact that his son is a murdering asshole. Right. Um, So, as a child, Richard had shown an aptitude for school. And so his governess, Emily Struthers, had grand ambitions for him and pushed him to excel by insisting on continuous study, reading of the classics, and limiting limiting his extracurricular activities. Despite this, in 1917, when 12-year-old Loeb entered University High School... Um, that's this, a confusing name. Yeah, it's a, it's a school funded by the University of Chicago. Okay. So I think that's why they called it that. It was very... It was almost like a Montessori school. Okay. So they let kids kind of learn at their own pace. They encouraged creativity. They encouraged... Um, a lot of different non-like memorization kind of and test kind of things, which was pretty neat. Yeah. Um, I want to go there. <laughs> as a freshman there, he thrived very much socially. He was First of all, he was in school with people who were his own age. Right. Um, he was an extrovert. He was enthusiastic, engaging, likable, and nice looking. And people were attracted to him, boys and girls. Yes, he did tend to lie about everything. But, well, he's a teenage boy. Um, he was eager to please others and a joiner. And people like a eager to please joiner. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the end of his freshman year, he was elected treasurer of the freshman class and manager of the freshman class party. Which just means he threw the party. Right. That's all. However, Emily's control over Loeb's free time started to grate on him, uh, further encouraging him to lie to her about his comings and goings so he could be socially more free. In his sophomore year, Emily buckled down on him and said she wanted him to graduate at the end of that year. Woof. So... She convinced, she was convinced he was a genius. Now, he had an IQ of about 160, so he wasn't an idiot. Right. But he certainly wasn't a Leopold either. Right. Um, and it would be the best thing for him if he graduated early. Uh, his teachers, and probably Richard, were like, that might be a little hurtful to a boy of 13. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of coursework that he'll have to do then, and a lot of stress. So she was like... I don't care. I don't care. Yeah. And she, he, she basically made Richard the most stressed out little 13-year-old that can possibly happen. So, And he gave up any limited extracurriculars he was already doing. He was in the literature club. He had to quit that. Um, and now, then now he had to concentrate solely on graduating early. He did it, but at what consequence? Because it was only four days after his 14th birthday. Ugh. So No, thank you. It was at that age when he started at University of Chicago when he, where he unsurprisingly struggled, even with Emily's supervision. And then in night, I mean, like he got like, by struggle, he got B's and C's. So it wasn't horrible, but it was, oh, certainly wasn't. I'm sure wasn't. it caught, caught plenty of shit from Emily oh, for I'm it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But then in 1920, after his first year at university, his parents let Emily go saying, 
At 15, he was too old for a governess. So now his guiding source, the woman who's been pushing him. The lady that forced him to graduate high school early. Yeah, but she's also been there for him and helping him study and like keeping him on track. Now she's gone. And in Loeb's words, he, he, quote unquote, sort of broke loose. (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling that that is an understatement. (laughs) Yeah. So it was this summer as well, the summer after his freshman year at college, when he met Nathan Leopold. Um, It's likely that they initially bonded because they were essentially the same age in a world where everybody was at least three years older than them. Right. Um, Whatever the reason. Yeah, that's definitely a good good bonding point. I mean, yeah, they live in the same neighborhood. They can see each other whenever they want. And also they're like kids. They're little boys. Well, not little boys, but they're boys. They're 15. So in a very adult environment, in a very adult environment. So whatever the reason for them becoming friends, it took almost no time for Leopold to become completely enamored with Loeb. It's like when you make friends when you're in like preschool or kindergarten, it's like, it's like you're four and a half. I'm four and a half. (laughs) We're best friends now. Yeah. Like you're 15 and going to college. I'm 15 and going to college. We're best friends now. We're best friends now. That's awesome. So the two began hanging out, obviously, but their priorities were pretty different. Loeb, now free of his governess, uh, spent most of his time at social events. Uh, he attempted to join a fraternity, but the membership felt he was too young. I'll uh, say. <laughs> yeah. Instead, he joined what's called the com- Campus Club, um, which was basically a non, not a fraternity fraternity, but like it's described in the books that I read as a um, not... What is it? Not a very good imitation, bad imitation of a fraternity. Poor facsimile. Yeah. So he liked to, but the thing is, is that didn't matter. Richard liked to drink. It's it's, it's like pizza. Even bad pizza is good (laughs) pizza. Even bad pizza is good pizza. Yeah. So Uh, Richard liked to drink. Uh, He liked to gossip. He liked to go to the speakeasies and pick up girls. Uh, Nathan preferred studying. He wanted to graduate as soon as possible. And he put all his effort into his courses. Um, so, But despite not having the same interests on the surface, mm-hmm. Nathan thought Richard was the Ubermensch, the beyond man, a Nietzschean theory mm-hmm. um, that a uh, concept, I, sorry, not theory, concept that Leopold defined as the perfect man above the law and one to aspire to. So it's likely because of this adoration that Loeb started to slowly show Leopold his true nature. Dickie was actually quite a con artist and a scofflaw. I just wanted to use that because of the 20s. Uh, He organized a scheme in which he and Leopold would cheat at bridge, scamming their friends out of money just to see if they could pull it off. They did. Together, the two would drive around late in the evening, late at night, sorry, not late in the evening, breaking car or storefront windows with bricks or stealing Milburn electric automobiles with the spare key to Loeb's mother's car, which he had found out would start other cars this is like a a 1920s version of a hacker (laughs) maybe yeah it's like oh this spare key works on all all the cars all right i'm in (laughs) they also set fires and they probably burgled houses at this point they definitely do it later but i don't know when it started but we're too smart for our own good we don't know what we're supposed to not do but dickie liked danger it excited him he fancied himself a master criminal and fantasized about pulling off the perfect crime one of great notoriety in his fantasy this is i mean this is a 15 year old kid i just want to note that okay i just want to stop you for a moment and point out that for some reason that stupid sandra bullock movie with the kid from boardwalk empire you know which one I'm talking about? I know about? exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that I keep like I was reminded of that for some reason earlier when you were talking about it, and every time you say something more, it reminds me more of 
what you're talking about or that movie it's called murder by numbers okay and what do you think it's based on oh okay (laughs) i guess i know what's gonna happen she's gonna catch him with dna (laughs) loosely based on Dickie fancied himself the master criminal. Perfect. Going to commit the perfect crime. Going to commit the perfect crime. And he had, a. in addition to that, he had a fantasy that went along with it. And that fantasy is that he is eventually caught and young women come to see him in the prison. Young, a crowd Mm -hmm. that's filled with young women. It's not just young women. Right. And they watch while he's whipped by guards. That's weird. He liked, I think he liked the idea of performing somehow, Mm -hmm. of being idolized. That's what he founded, Babe. Being idolized? Yeah. Okay. Babe, absolutely. Sure. Oh, yeah. The whole Ubermensch thing was kind of a a, a tip off. Nathan, Babe, for Mm -hmm. his part, also had a fantasy. He dreamed of being a slave to a king. His slave persona, however, had saved the king's life, and the king had offered to free him, but the slave didn't want his freedom. However... Man, these rich kids have weird fantasies. Oh, yeah. And the, the slave is very loyal to the king. And because of that, the king uses the slave for protection. He'll fight his battles for him. He'll do the trial by combat for him. He'll fight other slaves for fun for him. Things like that. Mm-hmm. So as in Leopold's mind and Babe's mind, Richard was the king to his slave. Gotcha. As far as the vandalism and crime went, he didn't care as long as he could hang out with Richard. His king? Yes. Yeah. But Leopold was not just getting that out of it. He was getting something else completely out of it. The boys had worked out a pact. Of course they have. Of course they have. Because why not? Well. It's a it's a murder story. There's got to be some kind of secret murder pact. It's not a murder pact. It doesn't matter. <laughs> not it's yet. It's still a murder pact. In which in turn for Nathan going on these nightly crime excursions, Richard would let Nathan have sex with him. Okay. The details of the arrangement change. Like, over time, they kind of redo this pact. So I don't really know. I don't really care, to be it's honest. But renegotiated. They renegotiated the, yeah. the, the terms. So it's it's not 100% clear how often, when, or even if it was full fully penetrative sex, oral sex, something else entirely. But it was something where they were, they were being sexual together. Gotcha. Maybe they were masturbating together. Who knows? But there was a sexual element to their relationship that was Nathan. And it was Nathan who was getting something out of that. Richard later said the sex was absolutely whatever he wanted me to do it so i did it he richard is a sociopath he is a narcissistic sociopath so he has no he does not give a shit if he has to have sex as long as nathan does what he wants does what he wants and follows with him and and lets him be richard richard likes being this guy around babe Mm -hmm. babe doesn't care what richard does but it gives richard an audience to do the things he wants to do right okay now, I just want to remind you, these boys are 15 and 16 years old. Yep. These are not adult men at this point in this entire story. Right. They never get to 20 in this story. So Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Well, they get to 20 eventually, but you know, in the things that they in do. In four to five years. Yeah. The things that they do in this story are all before the age of 20 years old. Gotcha. So Richard, he's tired of Chicago, Adrian. He's living with his parents still, but he's he's been a, he's gotten through two years of college. He feels like an adult. He wants out of there. Bored now. Bored now. Yep, yep, yep. He's been living at home, out of there. So he had friends at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, mm-hmm. and which was sufficiently far enough away from his parents, but close enough that he could still, you know, get home when he needed to. So he transferred. Nathan, whew, you can't leave me, Dickie. What are you doing? <laughs> 
he's so completely attached to his best friend, quote unquote, decided to transfer with him. However, while Richard began to bloom far away from home, Nathan fell apart. But there's reasons for it. He got scholar fever before classes even started. Well, that'll do it. His mother, who he'd grown close to since pedophilia sweetie got out of there, pedophilia sweetie, um, died finally from her mysterious disease gotcha. in October of this year. And just when he needed him most, Richard dropped him. What a jerk. Loeb had finally found himself a fraternity. Zeta Beta Tau. This was the Jewish fraternity at the time. They're, they're, I don't think they are currently a Jewish fraternity, but at the time they were a Jewish fraternity. Gotcha. Um, with chapters across the U.S., including Ann Arbor and Chicago. So when he goes home, he still had a fraternity. Uh, he was thrilled to be accepted as a pledge, but his bid came with a caveat. He had to drop Leopold 100%. Nathan was not well liked by many of the, of the brothers, and he was also... A suspected homosexual, which we know. We know. Yeah. Uh, they told Loeb that he was spending a bit too much time with Nathan, and his best chance of getting into the house was to drop his friend completely. And so, being the social climbing sociopath that he is, he did. Right. Now. Gotta do what you gotta do, gotta do I what guess. You gotta do, yep. Nathan spent the rest of the year basically in seclusion, occasionally spending time with other non-fraternity types, but mostly studying, and as I mentioned earlier, seeking out those birds that he was studying. Uh, the following year, he transferred back to Chicago and away from Dickie Loeb. That next school year, 1922-1923, would be when Babe would come into his own. Uh, he made friends. He joined Circolo Italiano, an Italian culture club, and the classical club, a literary club. He made excellent grades, including an A in classical Sanskrit. Wow. Yeah. Fucking, this dude would have been amazing if he hadn't been also... Well, I guess when you don't have the internet, what else are you going to do but, like, <laughs> study languages and cultures and stuff? I guess so. I don't know. And he received an honor of Phi Beta Kappa, which I think is just a big national honor society. Gotcha. Um, when he graduated in the spring, he chose law school as his next step. He would start at the University of Chicago and hopefully move on to Harvard Law. And all before the the age that he was legally allowed to vote. Well, that, this is, in 1922, Babe turned 18. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Technicality. <laughs> uh, Richard came back to Chicago in 1923 after he graduated. The youngest graduate in the history of UNM at 17. He still holds that, is my understanding. UNM? U of M. University of Michigan. Okay, you said UNM. I did say UNM. U of M. Okay. It doesn't really, it sounds weird saying that. U of M? Yeah. Mm. U of M. Anyway. Um, as a student, he lost focus and become a bit of a drunk. Many people couldn't even tell whether he was drunk or sober. Uh, I mean, good on him. <laughs> uh, he It caused him to be censured by the fraternity, um, losing his up- wow. and he lost his upperclassmen privileges. Yeah, his uh, fucking fraternity. You're so drunk that your fraternity says, yo, dude, tone it down yeah. a notch. They took away his, mem- his membership privileges, his upperclassmen membership privileges because of it. Uh, when he got home, he enrolled in, I don't know why, he went back to school. He doesn't fucking like school, but he enrolled in graduate studies at the University of Chicago with a focus on history. Uh, he And then he reconnected with good old babe. Of course he did. And the two fell right back into old habits. They fell in back in love. <laughs> I don't think Richard ever loved Nathan. No. <laughs> so the boys, now 18, now both of them are 18. Okay. Dick, or babe will be 19 in a couple of months, but... Regardless of what they got up to when they were younger, had taken to burglin. Burglin. Um, Dicky got in his head that he really wanted to burgle Zeta Beta Tau. He really wanted to go up to Ann Arbor. Censure me, huh? Yeah. I'm gonna steal all your shit. 
And <laughs> I literally have that maybe for revenge for the treatment he received. But maybe just for the thrill of stealing from people who he knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of part of, I mean, based on a couple of things he took. So they waited for the U of M football game on November 10th, 1923. Okay. It was against the Marines. The two jumped into Leopold's red Willie's Night. Which is a car, I assume. Yes. Okay. It's a sports car. Well, this the version he had was a sports car. Okay. I, I'm going to send you these pictures. I, I was going to send you these pictures before we recorded. I'm kind of sad that I forgot. Well, um, I freaking love back in like the heyday, like the golden age of like cars like car manufacturing because oh, yeah. it's like there were so many car companies back it, then. yeah you got like the there you know cars. umlaut hoopty duped yeah and you're like what the fuck is that well it's a car well how many did they make three <laughs> well willie's night was actually quite a big company yeah i'm, so. I'm guessing but like still like a big company and i'm yeah, using air quotes there a big company Ford, it's like it like nowadays Ford. it's like you know pretty much when somebody is talking about a car because there's like 20 car companies yeah. you know and back then it was like a thousand i was looking at these pictures because i wanted to know what i was talking about i wanted to be able to think about what i'm what i'm talking about and have a good picture in my mind of what i'm talking about and so i looked up willie's night sports car mm-hmm. and it's not the same thing as now where like they were actually like for sport right like or for racing it looks like I think it's just like a car that you can fit people in the backseat, but not necessarily. Well, back then, like, like I, I mean, I don't know that they necessarily called them sports cars. But, yeah, I don't know. But, like, but, this but is like, one of the things about like the... The, the equivalent of a sports car back then was was just, you know, this it was the same thing as the regular model of that car. It's just that they put a bigger engine into it. So it went uh, faster or something like that. The thing like is, that. is that I think that I found it because it's it was supposed to be a smaller car then mm-hmm. because later on there's another car that's big whatever um i think that this car is like i, I think i found it mm-hmm. and it's really cute and i would totally ride in it they're all really cool though like these are this is, we're talking about like 1920s cars which right. are all like the best some of the best time period for cars so just imagine kind of a neat looking old-timey car old-timey car with like a rag top that went a little faster than normal yeah and it was red so it could go 45 instead of 35 (laughs) it took i don't know how long it takes to get from chicago to ann arbor now but it probably took like it's probably like a five five hour drive or something all right so so they get into the car and they drive the 230 plus miles to ann arbor uh, they figure road trip. If anyone, so the the way that the that the universe, uh, the, I'm sorry, the way that the fraternity house is set up is this. This is I w- I think you you boys probably would have liked this better when you were in school. Um, the bottom floor is your standard kitchen, you know, common area, game room, things like that. Mm-hmm. Second floor is jackets, bathrooms, kind of you lay your shit down, you get dressed there, mm-hmm. powder rooms and stuff. Top floor is bunk beds. Gotcha. So everybody just sleeps in the same mm-hmm. thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they've got two stories in between. Unless the, somebody's awake. Right. They're probably not going to get disturbed. Right. Okay. So they go in. They figure if anybody comes downstairs, Dickie will just say he was there for the game. Right. I mean, they went for it went on the right night, right? Right. Um, I put go blue or something. <laughs> Is it blue and gold? It's blue and gold. Yeah. So, but it was a lucky night for Leopold and Loeb. Nobody woke up. After all, U of M had beaten the Marines 26 to 6. And I'm sure that there was a raucous party afterwards. Um, because apparently there were beer bottles and liquor bottles spilt all over the place. I feel like this person, there was the author of one of these, the books I used, kind of used them 
of their own storytelling ability. Right. <laughs> They're like, oh, there was probably empty bottles of booze all over. I mean, it was like a fraternity house in the 20s. There probably wasn't, it probably wasn't that obnoxious. Well, it might have been. Maybe it was. Um, what do we know? We weren't there. Well, nobody woke up, Adrian. So they made off with $74. Ooh. Several watches. A few personal trinkets of Dickie's friend, Max Schreyer. A bottle of booze. And a portable Underwood typewriter. Fancy. Yep. The last item was taken by Leopold, who thought it would be useful in typing up notes for his law courses. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, fuck these guys. I'm going to take a bottle of booze. I'm going to take their watches. I'm going to take all their money. And Leopold's like, hmm, this might be useful. <laughs> Let's um, actually, Dickie talked to Max Schreyer like the next week. Mm-hmm. And Max was like, he took stuff that only mattered to me. He took like his, like some award he received they took like something really like a couple really personal things to him Mm -hmm. and so i think that max schreyer was somebody dickie really didn't like Mm -hmm. and he wanted to stick it to him or Mm -hmm. he was one of those guys who was like stick it to the max stick it to the max (laughs) now i'm just thinking of the max from saved by the bell Bell. (laughs) so after they left they attempted to burgle another fraternity house but it just wasn't as personal. It just well. What happened was um, they managed to get a camera, but then like they heard somebody shuffling upstairs or something, and they left. So they just didn't want to get busted. Right. Um, it was on the way home, Adrian, that the subject of the perfect crime came up again. Richard, already bored with the crime, with the night's crime, right? It'd been way too easy to pull off. Thought their next big crime should be the big crime. The big one. Richard knew, and not New Orleans. Not New Orleans. Richard knew he could pull it off he was so such a master criminal he knew he could pull it off um but it had to be challenging as well to make it all the better when they got away with it they should kidnap a child ask for a ransom to make it more complex and interesting and of course to avoid detection the child would have to die they kidnapped the Lindbergh baby didn't they (laughs) that's not for like another 10 years but but they still got away with it it's still unsolved (laughs) no it's not it's all Lindbergh kidnapping. Okay. I'll we'll, take your word for it. We'll do that another time. Like, there's some questions. There's some conspiracy theories about the Lindbergh baby. Of course there are. But it's... Of course there are. Well, he was... Whatever. Not the point. We'll do it some other time when I want to cover dickheads from the 1930s. How about that? Let us know on social media if you want us to cover the Lindbergh case. Oh, if you want to hear me talk about what a piece of shit Lindbergh was. I want to hear that. You guys should totally <laughs> let us know that we should do that case. <laughs> So, uh, over the next few months, the, they, the two discussed it further, Adrian. Uh, the child, they had to discuss the child. Of course they did. The child would have to be from a wealthy family. And the parents would actually want to pay the ransom. They had discussed one option of a kid who they didn't think the parents would pay because <laughs> the dad was too cheap or they didn't like the kid or something. It was really like, wow, that poor kid. We should steal this kid. No, that kid's a turd. <laughs> We're not getting any money for him. Uh, should they kidnap a boy? Should they kidnap a girl? Now, Nathan thought it should be a girl because he also had a fantasy. Blech. Another fantasy. Another fantasy that he, of raping a girl. His fantasies are starting to turn so pedestrian. Well, a bunch of German soldiers raping a girl. If that doesn't make you feel better. Okay, I guess. No, it doesn't. Anyway, so Richard was like, fuck no, dude. I'm not into that. So. No, thank you. So we can we can like Richard for you that. You can pretend to be a slave to my king, and I can pretend to be 
committing a crime and going to prison and getting whipped in front of girls. But like, we're not raping anybody. That's right. Get that shit out straight out your head. Yeah, he totally rejected it. No I'm way. a sociopath and I disapprove of this <laughs> message. Exactly. <laughs> So um, he insisted they take a boy from the Harvard school, uh, Nathan's alma mater, and who they would take would just be decided later. They would just figure that out later. Hey, kid, pick a number one through ten. Yeah. Uh, you picked the wrong number. <laughs> in the meantime, there were other things to consider in their minds. The kidnap and murder would actually be the easiest part of crime. You see, mm. they weren't sure how to lure the child into the car, but they would have to render them unconscious once they got a hold of him. See, they were they were before, born before their times. Everyone knows now you use a windowless van that's got free candy spray painted on the side. <laughs> that just works. Yeah. Well, they thought they should maybe use chloroform to knock somebody out. Uh, Nathan had used it on some birds. And himself while he was masturbating. Chloroform used to be like really, really easily accessible. Oh yeah, you could buy it at the at the chemist. So weird. But you used to be able to buy heroin at the chemist. You know, you could, they, later on he buys hydrochloric acid. From the chemist. From the chemist. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, no big deal. Oh, what are you going to use it for? I'm hunting rats in my basement. Okay. So that's how they. That's... I need a grenade too. <laughs> for those rats? Yep. They're real pesky. <laughs> I'm going to blow my house up. <laughs> Just the basement. Just the basement. Yeah. So basically they would, they wanted to share responsibility for the murder. So they were trying to figure out how... Alfie doesn't like that. No. Alfie doesn't like that. It's like, no, you don't share. (laughs) You don't share responsibility for murder. Sharing is stupid. I'm a dog. I disapprove this message. So... So they decided that they would use a rope to strangle the child. Okay. And each one of them would hold, hold the side. One, one end of the rope. Oh my God. That's so stupid. <laughs> They're fucking 18. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> they would drive the corpse to an area near Wolf Lake um, by, the Indi- by the border between Indiana and Illinois, where Nathan often went birding. And there were train tracks there that had a drainage pipe underneath. Where they could just dump the body. Where they could just dump the body. So they thought it would, the trickling of the water would help the body decompose too. And that nobody would ever find. See, one of them should have studied chemistry in university instead of of philology. Dead languages. So to get the money would be more complicated. Okay. They decided to ask for $10,000. And to get that money would take a great deal of complexity. Through a series of phone calls and notes, they would get the father of the child to throw the money off the Michigan Central train from Chicago to Boston. The man, the father, would be instructed to board the 3 o'clock p.m. train, because the, the train went through it every day at 3 o'clock, walk to the rear carriage, look in the telegraph. This is all, like, before all this, there will be a series of phone calls and letters. So there's going to be a... It, it's not complicated at all. It's super simple, yeah, you guys. Super, super simple. So... So he would look in the telegraph box at the back carriage for a letter that would then tell him to throw the ransom from the train five seconds after he passed the red brick tower of the Champion Manufacturing Company. Okay. The boys had tested the drop and knew basically where the money would end up. So they plan this out, but you've got to get all the way to the end of the rainbow to get this money, right. right? Like the dad has to be fully... It's committed like, to this. It's like a Leslie Nope overcomplicated scavenger hunt. Yes. Now, they also had a, like a plan for like if, if it was clear the police were going to be there, they would just drop it, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so that's the plan for the ransom, okay? Okay. But there were other preparations to be made. Like figuring out what kid they're going to kidnap? 
I mean, you'd think, but whatever, Adrian. It is what it is. That's that's besides the point, Adrian. <laughs> uh. So Nathan's car was quite distinctive. We talked about Nathan's car. Right. It's a red, sporty Willie's Night. Sporty being relative. And would very likely notice be noticed right anywhere they went people would be looking at the car so they wanted a let to they want a less obvious car and so they decided to rent a car okay but they couldn't very well rent a car in their own names could they no certainly not so they decided to set up a fake identity take that mohammed salami so on may 7th 1924 so the planning starts in november we're into may now okay Mm -hmm. they've been planning this for months Nathan strolled into a local Hyde Park bank to open a checking account in the name of Morton T- D. Ballard. Morton D. Ballard. Yeah. Okay. Posing as Ballard, obviously, Nathan had told the cashier he was a salesman from Peoria and wanted to set up an account. The clerk asked for a reference. Mr. Ballard did not have a local person. He had a couple from Peoria, but nobody local. His address was also a Peoria address, but he told them that I'm going to be staying at this hotel. Mm-hmm. So use that as my address. The clerk thought it was a bit peculiar but on the other hand nathan had a hundred dollar bill right and hey man money talks it wasn't the clerk's business anyway you know right so we opened it up for him however he did make a note on the account to be careful against uncollected ones so he was you know washing his hand well he was he was covering his covering ass. his ass yeah. um then it was richard's turn the same day he strolled into chicago's morrison hotel with a suitcase full of books for some reason he put shit in the suitcase for no i don't and told the front desk clerk that he was Morton Ballard, a traveling salesman from Peoria, and needed a room for the night. After being shown to his room, he waited about an hour, left a suitcase in the room, and went back down to the desk. He told the clerk he would likely be doing more business in the area, and wondered if any local mail sent to him at the hotel could be held for his return. The clerk was happy to do so. Two days later, on May 9th, Nathan once again pretended to be Morton D. Ballard, and strolled into the offices of a car rental company. He had $400 in hand, along with his passbook from the Hyde Park State Bank. He told the agent at the rental agency the same spiel, that he was a traveling salesman from Peoria staying at the Morrison Hotel, and he needed to rent a car to visit some clients. He was willing to put down a substantial deposit for the car, $400, and could, could, could provide four references, three from Peoria and one locally, and that if he'd like to call the local source now, that would be fine, that his number was Calumet 4568. When the agent tried to call the number, it wasn't in service. Dun, dun, dun. Nathan realized then that he had spoken wrong and said, oh, it's Calumet 4658. And so this time, the source answered, identifying himself as Lewis Mason, and gave Morton Ballard a glowing reference. Richard was actually at a lunchroom waiting for the call and answered so quickly he almost knocked a stool over when the phone rang. <laughs> So Nathan took the car. I got it. I got it. It's mine. It's for me. It's for me. <laughs> so Nathan rented the car, drove around for a little while, and returned at about 4.30 p.m. just to kind of establish that, that he was a trustworthy guy. Right. Um, and when he paid his bill, he asked the man to send any mail to the Morrison Hotel. Now, this is because Richard Richard's actions here are super, super weird. So he's on the 7th, rented a room for one night, mm-hmm. and left a suitcase of books in for some reason right. in the hotel. Um and so he comes back two days later, so he's going to settle his bill two days later mm-hmm. and get his suitcase. But then he gets into the hotel room and his books are gone. Yeah, because yeah. you weren't supposed to, you were supposed to be My there. dude, you rented the room for, for one, one night. night. Yeah, so he, his books are gone and he gets, he kind of panics and he doesn't, he runs out without paying his bill and without asking about the, about the suitcase. I think he's worried that they, they found him out, but really they're just like, there's some fucking, 
There's a fucking suitcase. And... It's like, oh, the room's not supposed to be rented out. Yeah. There's a suitcase. Wow, the suitcase sure is heavy. I'm taking it down to the front desk. Yeah. They can deal with that. That's literally all it was. But, he, yeah. for, but this is where their youth is really clear. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really, like, you've done a fine job. Nobody really cares that yeah, dude, much. Yeah, this is, like, mad props to these guys. This is some serious, I mean, like, like you were, planning, uh, like, you were saying that they were, like, they had all of these things that they had to do before they actually did everything. And I was kind of joking around, but, like, seriously, that, yeah. like, that's some good planning. Yeah, it's their, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he, so they went to another hotel and Nathan went in this time and he was like, hey, I'm not going to, I'm going to be staying here in a couple of weeks. I'm not staying here tonight, but I'm going to be staying here in a couple weeks. If there's, if any mail comes for me, can you hold it? And they were like, yeah, sure. So that's, that, they could have just done that. Right. They, they, just had over, they overcomplicate some things, mm-hmm. you know? So ring, ring, ring. Hello. My name is such and such, yeah. the salesman from Peoria. I'm going to be, I would like to re- reserve a room for two weeks from now. If you get any mail for me, could you please hold it until I get there? Yeah. Sure thing, sir. Here's my references. <laughs> exactly. So the boys were. 42 skidoo. <laughs> what? Other things from the 1920s. <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> you can call me. My phone number is Pennsylvania 653000. <laughs> so as you said before, the boys were still on the lookout for a victim, Adrian. Right. And about a week before the murder. Because like that's the hard part for some reason is figuring out who they're going to kidnap. I don't, I don't think it's a hard thing. I think it's they don't care. Well, I know they don't care. As long care, as but the like, person has a, fa- has like a that's, wealthy family. Like they're leaving that to the last point and that seems so silly to me. Like I guess not really because like you said, they don't care. So they're just like, we want to commit the perfect crime, air quotes. And so therefore, you know, the who more we kidnap, it, is, it doesn't matter. The more random yeah. it is, the easier it would be to get, you know, whatever. So, yeah. so about a week before the murder, they try, I think Rich Richard makes an attempt to pick a kid. So he he runs into a neighborhood boy on May 14th, about a week before everything goes down. And he's Say, like, kid, do you think your dad would pay $10,000 to get you back <laughs> if you were kidnapped? <laughs> no, sir, I don't think he would. Now go away, you weirdo. <laughs> well, he, what he does is he asks him if he wants to go to a baseball game. And the kid's like, that'd be cool. When is it? And he's like, the next Wednesday. And he's like, oh, no, 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 I can't. I've got a dentist appointment or something like that. <laughs> Mister, I'm a kid. I don't plan till tomorrow. <laughs> I can't plan till next week. Now get out of here, weirdo. But apparently that wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. Um, They just went on with it. So then that weekend, um, Nathan goes spurting over by Wolf Lake and uh, Richard just kind of bums around and is Richard probably goes out with a girl or something and, you know, whatever. So then that next Tuesday, May 20th, Richard purchases, goes to the, goes to a hardware store and he purchases a chisel and 35 feet of rope. Nathan, same day, purchases writing paper and envelopes from a stationery store and then goes over to the drugstore and buys a pint of hydrochloric acid. For those pesky basement rats. Well, he says it's for a science experiment at the university. And the guy's like, oh, okay, sounds right. Mr. I didn't ask. I didn't ask what you wanted this <laughs> hydrochloric acid for. But it's totally for a science experiment. <laughs> Remember that. <laughs> He did my ask my name is Mr. So and So. I'm the traveling I'm the traveling salesman from Peoria. I'm doing science experiments at the university. That's what I need hydrochloric acid for. Here, have my suitcase of books <laughs> in payment. Here's my reference. <laughs> Please call them, but only during business hours. I mean, normal times that a person would be by their phone. <laughs> so once they had all their supplies. They went to Nathan's house, because why wouldn't you? And using the Underwood typewriter that Nathan stole from Zeta Beta Tau. Figured that was coming back. And without knowing who they'd be sending it to, they wrote the ransom note. To whom it may concern, <laughs> your daughter slash son has been kidnapped. 
<laughs> the next day, May 21st, 1924, Adrian, on May 21st, 1924, in Chicago, a brewery was busted for illegal alcohol, illegal beer. We are in prohibition, okay? What a bunch of jerks. And so they dumped all their beer into the sewer. And it ruined their plans for where to dump the body? And no, this has nothing to do with this case. Okay. And it caused a geyser of beer to explode in the middle of Chicago. That sounds like a dream I've had. (laughs) It was like the first line in one of the books I read. And I was like, are you fucking kidding? I looked at newspapers for that. I was like, that is fucking amazing. It's like New York has has sewer... sewer, Manhole covers exploding off of the uh, off of the road with uh, from from uh, fireballs, but like Chicago has manhole covers exploding off from exploding beer geysers. That's right, Midwest baby. What what? <laughs> <laughs> so the same day, Nathan and Richard got hella drunk on sewer beer. <laughs> no, they were too busy because in the morning they had classes. They are in school, you know, <coughs> and they decided to meet at about eleven a.m. For sewer, sewer beers? For probably sewer gin, honestly. <laughs> they probably had some gin in the car. Uh, so they drove to Nathan's to pick up their supplies. So the chisel, the adhesive tape, bottle of hydrochloric acid. And 35 feet of rope. Pieces of cloth, 35 feet of rope. A searchlight, which is a flashlight in case anybody can't figure that out. Um, a bottle of ether. And they wrapped it all in an automobile blanket that for some reason will be continuously referred to as a robe. For some reason, that makes me think of uh, standard adventuring gear in Dungeons and Dragons, and I don't know why. You've got <laughs> well, a rope. You got a bottle of you, ether. <laughs> you got a rope. You got a chisel. You got tape. You've got a bag. Uh, you've got ether. You've got hydrochloric acid. You know, standard e- adventuring stuff. gear. Yeah. I play in some weird D&D games. Yeah, yeah, you do. All right, so they got all that stuff. And the robe thing is really... Okay, so I I looked at three sources. Two most are my main sources. Leopold and Loeb, Crime of the Century. Okay. And For the Thrill of It, the story of Leopold and Loeb, or whatever. I don't have it right in front of me. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what they are later. Um, And... These accounts differ pretty substantially because they were written at very different times. So The Crime of the Century was written in 1970-something for the first time. And then it was updated in 1999. Gotcha. Then For the Thrill of It was written in 2008. And so it was... That's certainly a gap. Yes. Because some... um, They found the files in like a basement in the Chicago courthouse or something. And so they had like... I think that when they were released, people were all over them. So they started writing books, which is pretty neat. Um, But the crime of the century refers to this thing as a robe. Mm -hmm. Like everybody calls it a robe. Like the people at the time were calling it a robe. But then it's referred to as a car blanket as well. An automobile blanket. Interesting. So I don't know if those like blanket and robe were just like interchangeable at the time. Mm -hmm. I didn't look it up. I guess I didn't think to. Um, I will look it up. I'm going to look it up in between episodes and then I'll let you guys know. Okay. So anyway, so I just think it's funny that they call it a robe. Anyway, so from there they drove to the rental car agency where Morton D. Ballard was an upstanding citizen. Rented a Willie's Knight five passenger touring car. In either blue or green. There's different why, accounts. Why would you rent a car that's so similar? It's not. Okay. It's not similar. This is, I had to, I looked it up. So it, a five passenger touring car is literally like a sedan versus a coupe. Coupe. Okay. So it's, it's like a, 
It's a little bit longer, and it's actually kind of better looking, I think, than the, the smaller version. Sure. Um, it's got that big, nice bench seat in the back, mm-hmm. and it's it just kind of looks like, I don't know, the kind of... It's the kind of car I would like to ride around. It's in the car you would expect to to see when somebody said, "Oh, look at this car from the 1920s." Yeah, okay. but it's not a hard. It's not a hardback either. Okay. I think they probably make hardbacks of this. I don't know for sure, but the pictures I found, it was all like your your standard cloth. Okay, top. so just because it was a Willie's Night doesn't mean that it looked similar to no. the car that he normally drove. No, it okay. did not. And plus, it was very it was very different color. So his he drove a red car. And he picked a more standard color of either dark green or dark blue. Nondescript, you might say. Nondescript, yeah. So, but then, of course, you know, they've done a lot already today. They went to lunch. Right. So, around 1 p.m., they stopped back at Nathan's, where the Leopold family chauffeur, Sven England, was outside working on one of the family cars. Nathan asked Sven if the chauffeur could check the brakes on his car and fix them. They were squeaking quite badly, and he wanted to get it taken care of. The chauffeur was not really... In the mood, he was already working on one of the family cars. Right. Didn't really want to stop to do more a different job. Your family doesn't pay me enough. <laughs> so he offered to put oil on the brakes and then told Nathan to just use the, the emergency brake or something. And Nathan was like, no, I want it fixed. But then that's one account. But then the other account is that he told him that there's some really weird, like obvious discrepancies in my sources that were really messing me up. They're not important, okay? They're not essential to the story. It's like they're getting quotes wrong. Right. And I don't know why. Who's wrong? I don't know who's wrong, Adrian. I don't know who's wrong. But anyway, it doesn't matter. So so he insisted the brakes get fixed, and he gets into the rental car with Richard and goes. Mm-hmm. He's just, I'm out of here. Take care of the car. So, of course, Sven England fixes the brakes because... He's the boss's kid, and he pays bills. Right. And also, I don't think Nathan's very nice. So the easier the get him get him off his back. Yep. Easier if he just does the. All thing. right, fine. I fixed your brakes. Now leave me alone, kid. So this is like one thirty ish. So they got a couple of hours mm-hmm. to kill because school doesn't get out till like two two thirty three. Right. right? And uh, so they drive to Jackson Park, which is a park on the South Side waterfront. Okay. Um, I bet it's gorgeous. Sure. I've never, I don't spend, I haven't spent a lot of time in Chicago, but I bet it's amazing. After about an hour, they drove back to Kenwood and the Harvard School and parked on Ingleside Avenue, only an alley away from the front of the school. Nathan stayed with the car while Richard got out and walked to the school. There were some boys outside waiting to start a pickup baseball game. And Richard saw a boy named Johnny Levinson. He was about nine years old, and he was a classmate of Richard's brother, Tommy. Johnny's father was Salmon O. Levinson, an attorney who worked on the American disarmament de- delegation in world- after World War I. So it's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. And also, probably has some money. So Richard asked Johnny what he was up to, and the boy told Richard he was waiting to play a baseball game. A physical education teacher briefly came over to say hi to Richard, because they were about the same age. Mm-hmm. Um, or they knew each other from school or something like that. And while they were talking, Johnny took off to play the game. Which he'd actually told Richard would be at 49th and Deck Drexel Boulevard. So, oddly enough, this kid is like a fucking amazing bit of information. <laughs> He's like, hey, I'm going to go play baseball at 49th and Drexel. See ya, Richard. <laughs> it's like the quest giver in a, in a uh, uh, role-playing video game. Right. <laughs> like you're just walking down the street and some kid comes up and goes, hey, mister, do you like baseball? <laughs> I'm about to go play a baseball game with all of my friends. It's at 48th and Drexler. You should come by. <laughs> Map updated. <laughs> so... <laughs> So Richard then saw his brother and ran over and had a little co- little mini conversation with him uh, because, well, at this point, Johnny's gone, so right. whatever. So when Richard caught up to him, Nathan said there were some boys over on Ingleside playing in the street, but 
and they might be good candidates, but then after they took a look, they decided they weren't they weren't worthy of being their victim. These kids are too athletic. They might fight back. <laughs> So Richard suggested that they check out the baseball game and try to grab Johnny on the way out, you know? So they went to the game, but then they decided that it might be suspicious later if they had been, if they were watching the game. And then, of course, Johnny and Richard were talking earlier Mm -hmm. and people had seen them together. And they were like, maybe we should just like not, maybe we should get them on the way home. So they go to a pharmacy to look up Johnny's home address. And also to get more hydrochloric acid. (laughs) But by the time they got back, Johnny was gone. And they drove down the roads that they realized where he lives, and they didn't see him, so they figured somebody picked him up. So they were all bummed because they were like, aw, we were going to choose that kid, you know? And then, Mm -hmm. like, so they're like, well, let's just drive around for a little while, see if we can't scrounge ourselves up another child. And uh, so around 5 o'clock, they they were just about to give up, and they saw a young man walking on Ellis Avenue. Hey, kid, how much money does your father make? No, they know how much money his father makes. He's been umping a pickup baseball game. And then left early so he could be home for dinner. He wore a tan jacket. This kid, I'm putting this in here because it's the most 20s outfit. And I just, I think it's funny that that people actually wore this. So he wore a tan jacket with patch pockets, belted, belted, Mm -hmm. tan jacket was belted. He had a knickers, wolf golf stockings with checkered tops, a necktie, and a tan cap. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, whoa, whoa, man. His name was Bobby Franks, Adrian. Okay. And he was Richard's second cousin. Bobby's father, Jacob Franks, was well-connected in Chicago's Democratic Party. He'd come up through society, first as a trusted pawnbroker in the 1880s, when gambling was still unregulated in Chicago. Okay. I feel like the term, the terms trusted and pawnbroker haven't been used in the same sentence since that time. <laughs> well, his customer said he was generous, Adrian, and he gave up to 90% of what the items were worth when people pawned him. That's what I mean. Okay. He was like trusted to the people who were using his facilities in order to get, you know. Yes. And I'm saying that, that, that those two terms have not been synonymous with each other since then. Oh, okay. All right. So, so he used the money he made from the pawn business to invest money in Ogden Gas Company, in the Ogden Gas Company. Okay. And then later, he sold off his shares to the best name of a gas company I've ever heard, People's Gaslight and Coke Company. All right. For an estimated $1 million. $1 million then times? Then times. Yeesh. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Fucking A. That's a lot of hooch. Yep. So by 1924, he was only worth about $4 million, but still, that's a lot of money. I I'd mean, say so, yeah. If, if Loeb's father is worth 130 million at 10 million, 4 million's like 70 million or something, right? Yeah. 50, 50 million or something. Yeah. Also, Jacob Franks really loved his children. You said that real creepy. Well, like Falcor. Well, I just mean that he likes his children and wants them back. He'll get them back. He won't, he'll want them back. I see what you're saying. Yeah. You just said it in a real creepy I way. I did. I really did. He's not, he's not a sweetie petty. I like my children. He's not a petty sweetie. So Bobby, 14 and a freshman in high school, was his mother's favorite. He was almost as precocious as Babe and Dickie. A few weeks earlier, he'd won a debate on the death penalty, arguing against the practice. So he's a master debater? (laughs) He was also athletic, enjoying golf and tennis, the latter of which he'd been playing at Loeb's house the weekend before. Dun, dun, dun. That tennis game would be Bobby's undoing. As Leopold and Loeb approached him in their rented car, Richard called out to his cousin. He asked if he wanted to ride home, and at first, Bobby said no. But Richard told him he wanted to talk about the tennis racket Bobby had been using in the game they'd recently played. Because he wanted to give one just like it to his brother Tommy. 
That's sweet. Mm -hmm. But not sweet because he's lying. After that, Bobbly. 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 Bobby happily got into the car. He bobbly got in the car. He bobbly got in the car. So he, Richard quickly introduced Bobby to Nathan, who was driving probably, and asked if he minded if they took him around the block. Certainly not, Bobby replied. Not if I get to talk about my tennis racket some more. As they drove, Richard took out the chisel. He's in the backseat. The blade of which he had wrapped in tape so he could use the handle as a club. That, why? I don't know. The That's chisel dumb. thing has been getting yeah. me. I don't, I don't get the chisel thing at all. I just, I use a club. Use yeah. a baseball bat, right? dude. Like, I don't know. It's, Whatever. Because he's got it in his mind. He's some sort of master fucking criminal. Sorry uh-huh. for the swearing, but he's got it in his mind. He's a master criminal. And he's like, oh, yeah, like, this is my weapon of choice. Chisel. Well, plus, like, that was probably the first thing he thought of. Well, how am I going to, oh, I'll just tape uh, a chisel. I can get a chisel real easy. I'll just tape the chisel and then I can use that as a club. And then everybody, everybody will be like, oh, where'd he get the club from? Oh, we can't find a guy who bought a club because I bought a chisel. Joke's on you, coppers. So he takes the chisel. And when they turn the corner, he grabs his second cousin from behind, covers his mouth, and starts beating him on the head with the makeshift club. Richard hit Bobby four times, the last time breaking open his forehead, and then pulled the boy into the backseat of the car. Because Bobby's not passing out, because right. he's hitting him with a fucking chisel, not with a freaking real club. Yeah, and also in like the skull, which is super strong, and he's not going to knock him out from hitting him in the skull. Yep. So he grabbed the rag that they brought along and shoved it down Bobby's throat and then used the tape that he used to tape the chisel and or he grabbed another strip of tape and taped Bobby's mouth shut. It was only then that the 14 year old stopped screaming and making noises and he basically crumbled to the ground. Okay. Mm -hmm. They drove towards Gary, Indiana, which is kind of the area where this Wolf Lake is. Okay. Well, it's on the border between Indiana and Illinois. Right. Like right there. Yeah. It's like, I looked at the map. It's, I mean, in today's traffic, it would take you three hours, but then it was probably like an hour to go to get there. From where? From Chicago. Oh, it, yeah. It's like a nothing. It's yeah. a nothing commute. Yes. Um. So they, it was a little too early to hide the body. The sun was still out, you know? So they, Adrian, it had been like six hours since they ate something. I'm hungry. They were so hungry that they were like, let's go find some food. So they find some off the road, side of the road convenience store mm-hmm. that's right about to close, but it just happens to have some hot dogs and root beer. Probably some like a roadside cafe or something. Yeah. yeah. It was called the Dew Drop In. Nice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just got that. Yeah. Dew Drop In. Yeah. So they sat in the car or outside of the car. I'm not entirely sure where they sat and ate, but they ate their dinner with a young boy in the back of the car. Which is lovely. Mm-hmm. So once they were done, they decided they'd waited long enough. And by the time they got to Wolf Lake, it would be dark enough that they could hide the body. Or hide the kid. Mm-hmm. Well, he'll be a body. Because guess what, Adrian? Bobby's dead. He died in the car on the way to the Wolf Lake. Oh, they didn't even have to like actively murder him? They did not have to pull the both sides of the rope. But guess what? Now only one of them killed him. So that's going to be a problem maybe later. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I'm not really sure. So, well, I mean, I hope you're sure <laughs> you can leave the rest of us hanging, but you better know what's going on. So they pulled Bobby from the car. Uh, like I said, they planned to finish him off once they got there, but he was clearly already dead. So they put him on the, oh man. So they put him in the row on the robe or the automobile blanket or the blanket, whatever you call it. And they carried him to the culvert. They stripped him down. They took off all his clothes because they thought that it would delay identification and wearing that outfit. Maybe it would have. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and poured the hydrochloric acid all over his face. And then, because Nathan had been told by someone, or because he thought it, 
he thought that people could be identified by the shape of their genitals? Yeah, penis print identification. Yeah. Haven't you heard of it? So they poured the rest of the acid all over Bobby's But bits. not his fingers. Not his fingers. Not the actual thing. Yeah. Then, yeah, that's really funny. I didn't even think about that. Nathan, who wore, who had hip boots because he was always jumping around over here looking for birds and stuff, mm-hmm. um, had took off his jacket and shoes and put on his on his hip boots and got in the water with Bobby's body and started to shove the corpse into the drainage pipe. And it wouldn't go, it wouldn't really go, so he had to like kick it and punch. You know, it's very, mm, really, like imagine everything that a person would, do, try not to imagine it because it's terrible. He basically shoved a body of a 14-year-old boy into a drain pipe as horribly as he possibly could. But he eventually got it in, so good for him, I guess. I don't know. Like, But he did leave the feet slightly poking out. So not the best job, thankfully. Good enough for government work. Good enough for government work. So they go back to the car. Richard grabbed Nathan's shoes and jacket, and he grabs Bobby's clothes and the blanket. And so they're all set, and they're ready. And now they've all, they gotta, all they got to do now is send the ransom note, because now they know where it's going. Okay? Yep. So they stopped at a drugstore and found Bobby's address in the phone book. In block letters, Nathan wrote the address on the envelope. They bought postage that would guarantee the letter would be delivered in the morning and dropped it in the post. Then they went to the basement at Richard's house, burnt Bobby's clothes in the furnace, and noticed there was a sock missing. Dun, dun, dun. But I didn't think that really mattered because it's a sock. It's a sock. Who's going to care, right? It's on the train tracks. Maybe somebody threw it out the window, you know? Mm -hmm. The blanket, or robe, was too saturated with blood. So in their opinion, they thought that it would smell too much to burn it. So they decided to wait. They hid the robe behind the most incriminating evidence that they have. Yeah, the super bloody blanket. They hide it behind the greenhouse at the Loeb house. Now they only have one more thing to do tonight, Adrian. And tonight they need to go make the ransom call. Because so the ransom letter isn't enough. Yeah, they got to make out an initial call too. Well, like we said, there's going to be a complicated. Oh amount yeah, of, they've got a plan. They've got a plan. Now, the boys went to this gro- they went to a drugstore and they purchased what's called a telephone slug. And I don't I don't know if this is just like like they now that like you return this after you're like you're just in line to use a telephone cuz I don't know did they have actual it doesn't sound like there was a payphone situation. Whatever. It does matter a little bit though. It's okay. kind of interesting. I'm going to look up what a telephone slug is well, and what it meant. You're not telling me anything about it so I can't glean what it it's is. It's just like they can use a telephone then at the oh, store. Okay. So it's like a telephone permission or something like here's a penny i'm gonna go use the telephone i think sure that's what i assume okay so the franks had not we're going to the frank house now Mm -hmm. adrian they haven't been having a very good night can you imagine i mean bobby was late coming home after school and his mother flora was starting to worry Mm -hmm. but his father thought maybe he was just running late Mm -hmm. and boys will be boys boys boys. he was alternating between being a little He's that boy's in trouble when he gets home and then being worried because mm-hmm. Bobby is a pretty good kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, he umpired pickup baseball games. I know. That's pretty so. great. So. I know. That's my favorite thing is this little 14-year-old kid is like umping baseball games. Like so a bunch of nine-year-olds are like, hey, hey, can you come umpire our game? And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I it's, got some time. Sure. It's why adorable. not? It's adorable. Let, let me go grab my tan jacket so you guys know I'm the umpire. <laughs> <laughs> I got my my sock my my tall socks with the checkers on the top. What what? So he did play sports at school sometimes after school though. So they figured maybe he was doing exactly what he was doing, mm-hmm. you know, before everything happened. So he thought maybe he lost track of time. But by 9 p.m. they were getting worried. You know, kids not home. Let's go figure this shit out. So Jacob Franks calls his attorney friend Samuel Edelston. And I'm like, I'm not entirely sure why you call your friend, but maybe she was, maybe he just needed another dude around. I don't know. 
Um, Edelson came right over. He suggested that they call the teachers at the school to see if they knew anything. Because, right. you know, teachers, yeah. the, this is a pretty involved school. Maybe they'll, they'll know. So the athletic director, Richard Williams, who I actually read my handwriting wrong at first and thought it said Richard Wilkins. And I was like, excuse me. And I got really excited and I thought that would be fun. But it's from Buffy, if you guys don't know. So Richard Williams saw Bobby, Bobby leave the baseball game to walk home by about 515. Mm-hmm. Uh, that made the men think that maybe Bobby had forgotten something at school and then doubled back. And then he'd, then he'd gotten locked into the school. Mm. So they decided to go to the school. Back in the days before fire safe locked yeah. doors. So they decided to go to the school and try to find Bobby. So they go to the school. They find a window in the basement that's open and they slip into the basement window. And then they think, well, let's look around. But if we could find that window, Bobby probably could have found that window and gotten out. So it's probably likely that he didn't. he's not in there. Um, yeah, Bobby's not a big dumb idiot like his second cousin. <laughs> well, at this point, people think Richard's brilliant. He oh, was the yeah. youngest graduate of University of Michigan. So while they were gone, Flora received a phone call from a man with a cultured voice. And mm. this is what they said. This is Mr. Johnson. Your boy has been kidnapped. We have him and you need not worry. He is safe. But don't try to trace this call. We must have money. We will let you know tomorrow what we want. We are kidnappers and we mean business. <laughs> We are very serious businessmen. <laughs> From Peoria. <laughs> if you refuse us what we want or try to report us to the police, we will kill the boy. Flora fainted. I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at Flora. I'm laughing at what the phone call still. But Flora... Hello, sir or madam. We are the kidnappers of your son or daughter. They definitely killed the kid. Oh yeah, it's messed up. <laughs> like, like the fact that they that they planned everything in like such a reverse order is so ridiculous to me. Like they planned everything out except for who they were gonna kidnap and murder. And so like like I just keep seeing them having like like the ransom note that's like a form letter, and they the circle son or daughter depending on who they decided to to kidnap. And then like the ransom call was like a call sheet, and it said son or daughter, and they just forgot to to pick the one the correct one while they were talking. And it's just so ridiculous to me. So Flora fainted because it was very upsetting. And this is a thing. It's very upsetting. Yeah, Her I would imagine. Yeah. But when the men returned, they were actually kind of relieved. Well, at that, least now we know where Bobby is. Yeah, they, they know where he is. Uh, they could understand it. Yeah. So they know he's not in trouble. They know he's not dead, right? Because mm-hmm. the kidnappers are asking for money. They've And they already assured them that they're not going to kill him. Yeah. So yeah. as long as we do what they say. Filthy liars. So Edelson called to have a wiretap put in on the line, which is awesome like he's like sounds good high tech and then at 2 a.m they went to the police however when they went to the police edelson said i'm not entirely sure if we should be worried yet they did there was a kidnapping call but it could be bobby messing around it could be you know his friends you know something so let's not let's wait until the morning to really take this seriously okay is what basically what he said to them the next morning, the ransom letter arrives. Dun, dun, dun. Hello, sir or madam. Dear sir or ma'am. Just kidding. Dear sir, as you no doubt know, by this time your son has been kidnapped. Allow us to assure you that he is at present well and safe. Liars. You need fear no physical harm for him, provided you live up carefully to the following instructions and such others as you will receive by future com- communication. 
Should you, however, disobey any of our instructions even slightly, his death will be the penalty. For obvious reasons, make absolutely no attempt to communicate with either the police authorities or any private agency. Should you already have communicated with the police, allow them to continue their investigations, but do not mention this letter. Secure before noon today $10,000. This money will be composed entirely of old bills of the following denominations, $2,000 in $20 bills, $8,000 in $50 bills. The money must be old. Any attempt to include new or marked bills will render the entire venture futile. We the want $10,000 in denominations as follows. $20,000 $2 bills <laughs> or $5,000 $2 bills. Three. I can't math right now. <laughs> Three. Sincerely me. The money should be placed in a large cigar box, or if this is impossible, in a heavy cardboard box. Heavy is underlined. Cardboard box. Securely is totally capitalized. Closed. And wrapped in white paper. The wrapping paper should be sealed at all openings with sealing wax. <coughs> Have the money with you prepared as directed above and remain at home after 1 o'clock p.m. See that the telephone is not in use. You will receive a future communication you will receive a future communication instructing you as to your future course. As a final word of warning, this is a strictly commercial proposition and we are prepared to put our threat into execution should we have reasonable grounds to believe that you have committed an infraction of the above instructions. However, should you carefully follow our instructions to the letter, we can assure you that your son will be safely returned to you within 6 hours of our receipt of the money. Yours truly, George Johnson. Salesman, Peoria, Illinois. I I don't know if it's just, you know, the way things used to be or or not, but like that sounds overly educated to me. Like that whole interaction, like both the phone call and and the letter yep. seemed highly educated to me and it feels I mean, again, this is, you know, back of the day. So, you know, like nowadays, like you have the whole like psychological profiling of, of, of people thing where you're like, oh, this seems like a highly educated unsub, blah, 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 blah. You know, but like, I don't know if they even they did, did that back then where well, they were they like. do psychological profiles. Well, yeah, they were just like, oh, gee whiz, this, this fella sure sounds high, highly educated. This is literally what's going to happen. Like in the next episode, we're going to talk about the investigation mm-hmm. and that is one of the things that they notice right away that this is this is a highly educated person who has put this letter together in a substantially better way than you most can, kidnappers you be. can tell it was educated for the time because you didn't hear or see a single miasi in the whole exchange miasi we have your son say <laughs> so well, my name's janice janice snakehole and i'm gonna kill your kid if you don't give me ten thousand dollars ten thousand smackaroonies you hear well <laughs> The police are not the only ones who notice the professionalism of the letter. Uh, Edelston himself is convinced that it's a professional kidnapping gang, and he's pumped because to him, $10,000 is nothing to get a child back. Right. And they have no problems getting $10,000 together in the denominations that they want or anything. So they're pumped. $10,000? Hang on. Fish, fish, fish. Oh, I had that in my pocket. So they're pumped because... And here's a $2,000 tip. They're pumped because... That means that Bobby will be home by the end of the day. Or so they think. Dun, dun, dun. And that is where we will pick back up. To be continued. In our next episode. But yeah, so. Yeah, man. Like, this is great. I mean, it's not that great. No, well, obviously. Like, literally a child yeah. has died. But it is. It's. I. I. It's really. I, I think it's super funny when we talk about Leopold and Loeb and the 
uh, the meti- the way they meticulously plan this thing, and then it, when it all went down, it's just like anybody who thinks they're, they know better. Mm-hmm. Is It turns out killing someone is very difficult, mm-hmm. and they didn't realize that it was going to be as difficult as it was to even knock a kid out. Because they're, they're both very like non-athletic guys. Right. So they think that... It should be easy because they've seen it in a movie or they've seen it in, you know, a play or something like that where somebody just falls over when you when you hit them in the head with something. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that he gets a chisel, well, you've got to know where to hit to lock somebody out with a, with, with a small thing. Blunt instrument. Blunt instrument. Yeah. So it's, and a kid is no different than anybody. Their skulls are hard. They're, and they're, especially a feisty athletic 14 year old. Yeah. They probably should have. They're basically an adult already. Yeah. So. so I, I feel horrible for Bobby because I think that if he'd not been as into tennis if he hadn't been so trusting but yeah you know in the next episode we're going to talk a lot about um the aftermath of the murder and what happens in between when they when it happened and when they got caught and there's going to be a lot of times where you're going to be where you and the audience are going to say wow i can't believe that people didn't suspect them right because there's going to be a lot of times where they were richard in particular it's really like he's a as far as you you mentioned earlier, like the say the um murder by numbers. No, not murder by numbers. Um, psychological profiles. And stuff. Oh yeah, and yeah. he he fits a certain mold to a T that you just go, holy cow! If it was in today's age, he would have been number one suspect. Like they would have been like, oh, let's talk to that kid immediately because he is acting fucking not normal for somebody whose cousin died. Right. So, all right. So that's part one of the Leopold and Loeb case uh yep, the crime of the century number one the first crime of the 20th century that was the crime of the century the first crime of the century first crime of the century yay <laughs> um so uh s- stay tuned for uh for part two yep. um that will be coming out shortly yep. and uh if you want to uh hit us up we are on email at into the basement or the basement host at the basement hosts at gmail.com we're on twitter at into the basement into the basement and we're on instagram at into, into the, the basement, basement podcast. podcast so, so if you if you want to let a, let us know some stuff hit us up say on... hi we we've had a few people contact yep. us it's been very nice thank you and hi and thank you for listening uh please if you feel like you want to go ahead and rate and review us on itunes or wherever you listen or apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our podcast mm-hmm. um if you feel like donating, you can go to anchor.com and into the basement. I think we've got a donation page. We do. Uh, I mean, you don't have to if you don't want to, but we're that's happy. What, that's what donation means. That's what donation means. Um, and again, thank you for listening. And I really enjoyed doing this case. It's been really fun. I really like these older cases. I think they're great. So. They are great. I mean, they're not great because kids died. Wow. Kid died, but. As far as discussion wise, they're pretty great. Yeah, yeah. So have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.